This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. This is Kim Drapkin. I'm the Chief Financial Officer of Jout Therapeutic, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 379. When it comes to a crisis, you know, one of our other findings was that there were really only two individual aspects that that were really important in crisis and the, the number one personal characteristic was competence in terms of what people were looking for in their leadership and then the second one was a loyalty downward where people were confident that that leader was not going to throw them under the bus or you know use them in some egregious way that would advantage the leader but disadvantage them and so when you think in terms of a CFO's role and, and you know what they're bringing to the table, certainly a quiet, high level of competence where people can believe what they're told. They know that they're that the, the CFO's operating in a with a sense of inte- not only integrity but also just smart analytical knowledge. Um, that's what people need. You know, that's what they need for a CFO to be. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Tom Kolditz, founding director of the Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University. A retired brigadier general, General Kolditz has led a distinguished academic career. Today, his research has advanced new insights into leading in crisis. While exposing a form of quiet leadership, a distinct leadership posture that has arguably been adopted by many CFOs today. Our discussion begins after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. We're speaking to Thomas Holditz, the founding director of the Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University. A retired Brigadier General, Tom has taught at the Yale School of Management, where he was a director of the Leadership Development Program, and he led the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point for 12 years. Tom, welcome. Oh, thanks, Jack. I'm happy to be here. So, last fall, Tom, as I mentioned, I think, earlier, I was fortunate enough to hear you 
speak on the subject of leaders in crisis at the MIT uh, Sloan CFO Summit. And I made a mental note to follow up with you to uh, secure this interview uh, with the hopes of revisiting the subject area for our audience. Can you first take us back and share with us what led you to focus on this specific area of leadership? Well, you know, in, uh, in 2001, I'd just taken over chairmanship of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point. And when 9-11 happened, it was apparent to all of us in very short order that we'd be sending virtually all of our graduates to either Iraq or Afghanistan with 30 or 40 of other people's children, and they would be, you know, leading in a crisis context and dangerous context all the time. And we reviewed our curriculum, and I, you know, I was shocked to find out that there was no evidence-based curriculum on how to lead in crisis. There was just a lot of war stories and historical anecdotes. And I asked the faculty there why we didn't have it, and they said, well, you know, they're just, uh, we only teach evidence-based work, and so they, you know, there's nothing in the management journals about this level of crisis leadership. And I said, okay, so, so now we're going to generate the leadership. So in the course of about three years, I had uh, nine people, including myself, go to either Iraq or Afghanistan or both and study the relationships between soldiers and the leaders who are either taking them into combat or ordering them into combat. And we followed up that research with what I would call broadening research to, uh, to, to get a sense for how much of this also is existing in civilian settings. So I interviewed people like mountain climbing guides and people who took video teams into Indian tiger preserves and take tigers on the ground and you know, people in all kinds of dangerous occupations, whether military or not. And initially I thought that this research was just going to benefit people like soldiers and law enforcement and first responders and, and people like that. But interestingly enough, it was a finance crowd uh, that convinced me that it was much broader than that. It was actually a group of managing directors from uh, Goldman Sachs who had come to visit West Point, and I told them about the research, and I told them they'd find it interesting, but that it really wouldn't apply to them. Uh, and I got about 20 minutes into the talk, and one of the MDs raised his hand, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't think you understand our business or the pressure that some of us are on. He said, you know, you've never looked into the eyes of somebody who lost our firm $500 million in a deal. And, you know, they're going to lose their job and, you know, they're going to have a hard time keeping their home and, you know, people commit suicide over business deals. So he said it's really a lot like life and death for us. And so I studied that. I mean, I, I really took that comment to heart and I did a lot of work in neuropsychology and, and in other areas to determine if people's crisis response, in, in, especially in terms of what they needed from leaders, was, was different you know, based on whether the threat was a physical threat or whether the threat was a, not a threat to life but to livelihood or, you know, to serious other serious consequences. And as it turned out, there's really not much difference at all. People need the same qualities in their leaders in both of those contexts. So that's how I got started on this topic. Now, there was a, a number of intriguing findings that seemed to challenge uh, conventional wisdom or how we traditionally 
have perceived, uh, let's say, the leadership pisana. And, and one characteristic that effective leaders in crisis share, according to the findings, is that they're, they're not motivational leaders. They're not cheerleaders. Why is that? Yeah, you know, that was a really interesting finding that we discovered when we compared um, uh, athletic team captains from routine athletic teams like football and rugby and, um, you know, volleyball and track and so forth to the, the senior cadets, the cadet instructors on the West Point parachute team. And we compared the, uh, quantitatively using a bunch of uh, interviews and, and surveys, you know, how they were different. And one of the things we found was that, you know, the athletic team captains wrote, rated themselves as very high motivators. That was a personal characteristic that was very high on their list of importance. And to the parachute team leaders who were, you know, three to five days a week uh, teaching other cadets how to jump out of airplanes, Motivating was second from the bottom of the list of nine qualities. I mean, it wasn't even it wasn't even significant. We didn't have to run statistics to know that it was a whopping difference. And so what we discovered was that people that are routinely in crisis are used to being around people who are already concerned, excited, aroused. They don't need any other excitement. They don't need somebody who's angry. Certainly, they don't need to be around a leader who's expressing any kind of fear or anxiety because it just makes things worse. It spins people up, and they become ineffective. And what we found in the interviews of the, of the professional crisis leaders was that they tend to calm people down. You know, they tend to be really humble, quiet individuals. In fact, when you, when you hang around the special operations community, um, they, they often nickname themselves the quiet professionals. And it's because they have to routinely keep people calm in circumstances where, you know, people don't want to be calm. People, people are already excited. And so, so the high motivators don't do well in real crisis. They do pretty well in a boring environment, which is, you know, often military circumstances can be super boring. But that has to go away when people are afraid. Um, and it's the same way in business. You know, the yellers, the screamers, the you know the people who get upset when they hear bad news. They they generally don't last that long, and certainly they're not as effective as people that listen quietly and then assess the situation and figure out what to do and take the organization through the rapids. Well, that label is interesting, the quiet, quiet leader. Because so often when we compare, I think, uh, CEO leadership to CFO leadership, we talk about how the CEO is the more expressive, perhaps the louder, perhaps more of a cheerleader than the CFO can be. And their leadership is certainly quieter, and it's more linked to the facts, maybe more grounded. Am I drawing a fair distinction? Yeah, no, I mean, it makes complete sense to me. You know, the CEO has to, he's responsible not only for purpose and direction, but in, in many times there has to be some motivation of the workforce. You know, in, in routine times in particular, 
depending upon the, the level of purpose that, that the organization has, you know, if you're making widgets, somebody's got to get you excited about making widgets. But when it comes to a crisis, you know, one of our other findings was that there were really only two individual aspects that, that were really important in crisis. And the, the number one personal characteristic was competence in terms of what people were looking for in their leadership. And then the second one was a loyalty downward where people were confident that that leader was not going to throw them under the bus or, you know, use them in some egregious way that would advantage the leader but disadvantage them. And so when you think in terms of a CFO's role and, and you know, what they're bringing to the table, certainly a quiet high level of competence where people can believe what they're told, they know that they're that the, the CFO's operating in a with a sense of not only integrity but also just you know smart analytical knowledge. Um, that's what people need. You know, that's what they need for a CFO to be. Um, you know, they don't they, there is no emotionality in getting through serious crisis. There just isn't. I mean, you either can do it or you can't. You can either provide the solution or, or you can't. Uh, and no amount of spirited encouragement is is going to matter. And so, to me, that sounds like what I would want to train CFOs to be like is, you know, straightforward, honest, intellectually sound analysis you know, high degree of familiarity with the law so that people can look at them and say, well, if this, if this person tells me this, I can, I can take it to the bank and I, this is what we're going to do. You know, I, I'm struck by the word competency and, you know, how in crisis uh, it sort of trumps the visionary role of leadership. And, and, uh, we know there have been many headlines where a CEO is ousted from a troubled company and the CFO steps in to fill the void. Um, frequently, it's, it's temporary until a, a new uh, visionary CEO enters the C-suite. But in that moment of crisis, uh, competency as Trump's vision. And it's interesting because I think it's evident how leaders reveal uh, their vision, but maybe not as evident how a leader uh, reveals competency. Yeah, you know, I mean, so many organizations build levels of trust through social means. You know, they'll host golf scrambles with the, with the leadership and the employees, or they'll have wine and cheese on Thursdays or on Fridays. They'll all come in casual clothes and act nice to one another. But what happens in a crisis is all of that social capital instantly becomes less important. No, nobody cares, you know, what your golf handicap is or, you know, if, if, if you were nice to them at the wine and cheese party. They just want to know if you can get the company through this, you know, that if you've got the, if you've got the competence to get that done. And so, you know, I encourage people to spend a little bit of thought towards allowing other people in the company see them work, see them make decisions, you know, watch them go through thought processes that lead to decisions and outcomes. And the reason for that is that, you know, most CEOs and CFOs are in their jobs because they're pretty good. 
but a lot of times they the people don't see them in in decision making mode and so they have no basis on which to judge their competence other than the stuff that comes out on email or you know whatever and you you know you can't you can't fake competence i mean you, you know if you try to show off or you know show how smart you are you always wind up looking dumb so so the only way to do it is to make sure that there's some visibility on your on your part as a leader that the people see you operate um, and and that can only contribute to their willingness to trust you in these crisis situations because what really defines these crisis situations is uncertainty and the only way to motivate people or to or to influence people in conditions of uncertainty when you don't have data you don't have facts you don't you can't look into the future is is to have them trust you so unless you can build that foundation of trust you know you are way behind the power curve when the actual crisis happens and and you know look i mean in routine times when everybody's making money and nothing's going wrong people will put up with atrocious leadership i mean they will you know they'll go through the motions and get the check and and they'll put up with really bad leadership but as soon as there's a crisis everybody wants a competent leader and uh you know the only reason they're going to believe you're competent is if they've watched you work. Are you task oriented? Many finance executives are, and focusing on a task is known to appease fear and anger, or so Tom Colditz tells us. After these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Another finding uh, from your research I think may offer some insight into why finance leaders possess uh, certain qualities that uh, should distinguish them in a crisis is how a task orientation can alleviate fear or anger. And uh, we often hear finance leaders describe themselves as disciplined. And uh, they've achieved that discipline, I think it could be argued, having come up through the ranks of professionals that are very task-oriented, whether it's closing the books or operating within a budgeting cycle with numerous deadlines and milestones. Uh, finance executives arrive in that leadership role with an understanding of the different tasks that make a, a business function. And what the finding revealed is that a task orientation gets people to focus and, and uh, removes them from fear and anger uh, due to the crisis. I hope I'm not uh, 
making this too much of a stretch, but can you tell us about that finding? Yeah, that's a sweet finding, you know. I mean, really, it's it's pretty simple, and it's based in neuropsychology. So, you know, we experience fear and anger in a central brain structure, structure called the amygdala. That's where you get the fight or flight reflex. And um, to, in order to perform tasks, to be task oriented, you're actually in a different part of your brain. You're in the prefrontal cortex. And so when you focus outward onto accomplishing a task, you're really activating a part of your brain that's incompatible with fear and anger. And so so task focus, either in yourself or in people that you're trying to calm down and control, is how you manage fear and anxiety. It's not by, by trying to control your emotions, because that just focuses people on the emotions themselves, and it'll make things worse. Uh, you know, if you've ever been in a crisis and somebody said, you know, you just need to calm down. You know, you, you know that often the response is, well, I'm not going to calm down. You know, this is a we're, in a, we're in a crisis. But if you focus somebody outside themselves on a task, um, they immediately calm down. And, I, you know, I was a parachute instructor for many, many years. And in tandem parachuting, I always taught my passengers, I said, okay, when we get in the door, I want you to look at the wingtip, and there's some rivets on the wingtip. And I want you to count those rivets for me and tell me when we get on the ground how many there were. And when people would go into the door, they'd immediately look at that wingtip and be focused, and they, they wouldn't be afraid. And then I'd quickly take them out the door, and, and everything would be fine. Um, so really, once you're focused on a task, you can do things that, you know, maybe maybe you couldn't do under other circumstances, but the fact that you're, you're, you're task-focused helps. You know, and you, you'll you hear people who who are in crisis and in dangerous situations, and they'll say something like, oh, my training kicked in. You know, well, what does that mean? Well, that means they were task-focused. They were, they were completing some kind of task that they had learned or been trained to do, and they were functional because of that. But it was because they were outwardly focused. It wasn't because they were trained or untrained. It was because the task focused them outside themselves. And this is true even when we're, you know, in a family situation and you're dealing with a family crisis and, you know, you have to kind of get people under control. You know, okay, kids, here's, here's what we're going to do. We've got a list of things. Joey, you do this. Janie, you do that. And, you know, it's pervasive across our lives. That's just how we control fear and anger. Your, your research also revealed the... Uh the importance of being seen and, and communicating uh, the shared risk. What, uh, why was this finding so important? You know, um, people tend to trust leaders who are willing to expose themselves to the same level of risk as, as the rank and file. And in a corporate setting, the reality is that um, people tend to believe that the leadership is pretty well advantaged. They expect them to have, you know, better separation packages, golden parachutes, you know, better compensation to begin with. So there's this perceived inequity. And, you know, leaders who can 
reduce the perceptions of inequity, who can emphasize that, look, you know, I have skin in the game too. You know, our company's under stress right now, and if it goes down, you know, it's, it's not like I'm going to walk away clean. Um, people tend to trust leaders who are willing to admit that and who put themselves in harm's way. It's just like a military person or a police officer leading from the front where, you know, they go through the door first or, you know, military officers are famous for, for eating their food last, you know, making sure everybody in the unit's fed and then the boss gets fed. And um, it's, it's that kind of principle that tends to create trust and inspire people. And then likewise, when someone deliberately advantages themselves relative to the people they're trying to lead, um, excessive self-interest is the definition of cowardice. I mean, literally, if you go to Webster and you look up cowardice, it's going to talk about excessive self-interest. And, and so, you know, people... Cowards are dangerous, especially when they're leaders, and, and so people are looking for leaders who are willing to accept, you know, pretty much the same level of risk as anybody else in the, in the organization. Um, they trust them to make decisions about their well-being and their future. Now, finally, you, uh, we talked about competence. You've used the word trust throughout uh, our discussion, um, but you had uh, said confidence, loyalty, and trust. In that order. Why that order? What are you getting at there? Yeah, so really the, the two things that you have to establish in order for trust to be built is number one, that you're competent, and number two, that there's loyalty downward towards the, towards the other people in the organization. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to make decisions that might affect them negatively. I mean, a lot of the research that this was based on we're on leaders that were literally ordering people to their deaths, literally ordering people into combat and into uh, extremely risky circumstances. But those people knew at that time that that leader was, would be willing to go there themselves and that that leader was, was you know, not, not wasting their lives or, or their livelihood. They were, you know, the leader was taking into account the, gra the gravity of the situation and, and wouldn't do it unless they thought it was necessary for the mission and that there was a reasonable chance of, of uh, success and, and survival. And so you, you have to have those two things. If, you, if people, you know, think you're loyal to them but you're not competent, they will not trust you or your decisions. And likewise, if you're highly competent but people think you'd be more than willing to throw them under the bus – they will also not trust your decisions. So those two things have to be established in a crisis before people are going to be willing to trust that leader in circumstances of high ambiguity and uncertainty. And, and you know, you can't start building trust when the crisis happens. You, know, you have to behave this way more or less on a daily basis so that when the crisis happens, you've already got money in the bank and people know, you know, they can count on you. Um, it doesn't mean you're not going to fire them. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have some difficult decisions to make. But they know that, you know, you're not going to make them in a capricious way or in a self-serving way. You know that you're going to do what you can for them. And, uh, and then, you know, honestly, they'll do anything for you. I mean, they will trust you. They will, 
they will do hard things, they will do dangerous things. Um, but, but without those two things, trust is not going to exist, and it doesn't matter how many wine and cheese parties and golf scrambles you have. I have to believe there's just a huge appetite for these types of insight uh, into leadership. And um, is there more uh, to come? And uh, maybe you can tell us some of what's been published so far. Well, you know, I published a book in 2007 called In Extremist Leadership. And, and the reason I did it was a, more of a trade book. You know, it wasn't an academic book. It was a book that, you know, almost anybody could pick off of a bookshelf and read. And I did that because I wanted to generate uh, interest in the area so people, you know, better and smarter than me would, would pick up on the research and, and start doing it. And I'll tell you, I have been just astonished at the the degree to which this is spread. I mean, there have been hundreds of articles about it, many doctoral dissertations, some of which I helped with, some of which were, were independent of me. I just reviewed a book that was written by, uh, or, or edited actually, by a trio of Swiss researchers. And I think there were 15 chapters in the book, and probably eight or ten of them were referencing the research that we did at West Point in my book and and so forth. So actually what's happened is there's been a ton of research generated, uh, you know, by some really distinguished scholars. And there were people that were writing about it from Japan, from China. You know, there's a Chinese translation of our book, a, a Japanese translation. They used it at the Japanese National Defense Academy. The Israelis use it. Um, and so, so there really has been an, an interest in writing about this. And it's kind of fun to watch. You know, some people kind of want to sneak in a little bit, and instead of calling it an extremist leadership like we did, they'll call it extreme leadership or, or something. But, we, you know, we're just amused by all that. I mean, we just want people writing about these kinds of circumstances, and, and we kind of in the end don't care who gets all of the credit. You know, we just we just want there to be – intelligent dialogue that goes beyond just a bunch of silly war stories, you know, and, and, and case studies, you know. I mean, the case studies on crisis are just so painful because they're all about, none of them are about professional crisis leaders for the most part. They're about regular businesses who got into trouble. And so it's like, it's like trying to learn golf from amateur golfers who are hacking around in the Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.